Democratic base is very dialed into abortion rights as an issue more broadly. Uh, Same-sex marriage, right. Closed the state's last abortion Mr. provider. Has now apologized to his congregation. They believe the Bible has application for every part of our lives. He her views as a Southern Baptist. He's on camera saying that Bill Barr was a great In the midst of all of today's noise and confusion, we need a voice that cuts through the chaos to bring wisdom and clarity. Welcome to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's, an hour-long show exploring critical issues related to faith and culture from a uniquely Christian perspective. Now, here's your host, Julie Roy's. Well, is belief in God reasonable, or is faith anti-reason, anti-science, and part of the problem with society rather than the solution? Welcome to the Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're going to be debating this important issue with two men who see things very differently. Joining me today is Stephen Hicks, a professor of philosophy at Rockford University in Rockford, Illinois. Hicks is also the director of the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship and a senior scholar at the Atlas Society. But pertinent to our conversation today, Stephen does not believe that Christianity is reasonable. He sees traditional Western religions as the enemy of science and feels they've been rendered irrelevant by scientific discovery. So, Stephen, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Good. Thanks for the invitation. And challenging Stephen's position today is a math instructor who for 20 years ran a philosophy discussion group in the public schools called the Truth Seekers Club. He's also publicly debated intelligent design versus evolution and taught comparative worldviews to high school students. And he's someone very near and dear to me because he's my husband, Neil Royce. So, Neil, this is kind of fun. We've never been on radio before together. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Yeah, well, I think this is going to be a great discussion. But before we actually dive into our debate, I'd like to take a minute just to set the stage a little bit, because Stephen has written really a brilliant book called Explaining Postmodernism. And Neil, you're the one who brought this to my attention. You've read it like, what, three times? It's going on four now. <laughs> it's going on four. So and it's not that often my husband devours a book like this. But what this book does uh, really, really well is expose the problem with the reigning worldview in our society, which is postmodernism. And I'm guessing most of you listening have at least some knowledge of what postmodernism is. Um, but this is a problem, and I think just understanding postmodernism as problematic is something that I think Neil and Stephen would agree on. But where you differ would be on sort of the solution to that problem. And that's where our debate today is going to focus um, on reason and Christianity, whether, you know, reason should just be is just the solution to it or whether Christianity is reasonable and Christianity can offer the solution. Um, But, Stephen, why don't you set the stage of understanding kind of our postmodern culture in the milieu in which we're living and why you think it's problematic? Right. Well, it's problematic. Postmodernism is a very vigorous uh, intellectual and cultural movement. Whether it's the dominant movement of our time, I think that is an open question. It could Mm. just be that it's a a noisy minority or a a significant number of people who are well entrenched in important institutions. But uh, uh, it is uh, vigorous, and I do think it is threatening. So if we take modern Western civilization, which is actually increasingly becoming global civilization, uh, as valuable, and the Enlightenment is an important uh, capstone contribution to that, the postmoderns want to argue that uh, either the entire modern world is a mistake, 
uh, or it uh, uh, was uh, disingenuous from the beginning and, and uh, is now reaching its pathology. But the characteristic traits of postmodernism are very strong skepticism, uh, often uh, kinds of subjectivism, but subjectivism that is uh, not an individualistic subjectivism, but kind of a group subjectivism, that groups have their own identities and their own different ways of knowing and values. Uh, typically, those groups are uh, in conflict with each other fundamentally, uh, and then ultimately the only way we're going to be able to resolve differences is through compulsive, uh, forceful, violent methods, uh, perhaps. So all of that is an attack on the modern idea that uh, we are rational beings, that ultimately our interests are harmonious, that we should focus on individuals and give them and respect their rights, and that all individuals of any uh, you know, sex, gender, race, ethnicity, and so forth have the same general rights, and that uh, rather than forceful, conflictual resolutions of debates, we can sort things out as civil human beings, or we can take things to courts that have rational, universal procedural principles and work things out, hopefully, peacefully there. So, so we have uh, sort of... That's what we're up against. So sort of modernism, there was this embrace of truth and reason, postmodernism, yeah. kind of throwing that out and maybe in its place, uh, establishing power in its absence... And yeah. and whoever, you know, might is right. And we, we do see that, you know, with even the identity politics that's happening. And are we moving more towards a totalitarian type society? And can we even debate things rationally? Because if if you offend one group or another, you, you can't even have the discussion. It makes it very, very difficult right. to have the discussion. But we're going to have the discussion today about the reasonableness of, of faith. And is there anything you want to add to that, Neil? Yeah, just uh, one thing I'd like to uh, just express appreciation for, Stephen, in your book is that you really helped me understand and learn how to explain the core problem with postmodernism, as you do an excellent job of tracing back the origin of the ideas to some um, some early Enlightenment thinkers like Immanuel Kant and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, helping understand how they decided that the only way to access truth or the only truth that's reliable is in their own minds. And so that helped me understand why there's no hope offered by postmodernism, because even though postmoderns say that, yeah, we're going to have a great community and we're going to rely on our groups instead of external authority figures, the postmoderns have no reasonable account for why it is that we can have hope to resolve disputes. There's no hope for reasonable debate because there's no reason to believe that anyone is in touch with reality. How are people going to come to an agreement about what reality is unless they're in touch with reality? And they, they don't even believe they are. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, nicely, nicely stated. So I could just uh, yeah, have a, uh, one more preamble remark. Sure. It uh, really is a, a three-way debate. So there are the moderns and the pre-moderns, and it's a multi-dimensional or philosophical debate. Obviously, it has cultural applications. So the postmoderns, you know, if I put a, try to put a positive spin on them, what they will say is you know, that for thousands of years, we human beings have been arguing about what is the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. and essentially, the pre-modern position uh, would be to say that there's a higher reality, a supernatural reality, there are gods or a god, 
And we can only understand anything first by acknowledging the existence of this higher reality. The moderns come along and say, well, you can't prove the existence of a god, so we go with what we know, and what we know is that there's a, a natural physical world. And so you have that two-way debate over what is the nature of reality. And the postmodern position then is what we call an anti-realist position, which is to say, you know, we've been having these debates, nobody's uh, convincing anybody else, so that shows that we just can't really know what the nature of reality is. Hmm. So uh, there are three distinct positions there. And another dimension of it is going to be uh, to say, well, we're going to come to know this higher reality, how do we do so? And then the pre-modern position is to say that first we have to accept the legitimacy of revelations or prophets or mystics, various non-rational people who have direct access to the gods or God. And then the rest of us who don't have those uh, special revelatory insights, we have to accept their authority or, or just take it on faith, right, what these authorities are saying. But uh, the pre-moderns will argue we can know the truth, but we have to use these non-rational, mystical, revelatory methods. The moderns come along and say, we don't think any of those methods are legitimate. Instead, you should use your senses, we should use logic, we should use reason, math, and so forth, if you really want to know. But what both of those agree upon is that there is such a thing as truth and knowledge, but they will disagree fundamentally about the methods. The postmoderns come along and say, we don't think any of those methods are actually legitimate. Right? Mystical insight, uh, faith, reason, empiricism, and so forth, all of those have been, from their perspective, shown to be illegitimate. So what we need to do is dispense with the idea that we can actually know anything, hence the skepticism. So we are going to assume today, and, and it's true, if, if I'm having this conversation with a postmodern debating whether something is reasonable, just the fundamental premise is, is kind of thrown out. We can't even use the tools to have that debate. But we're going to assume today yeah. that, that we can have this debate, that our minds actually are reliable, and that we can look at external data and take that in and evaluate it. Um, but I know, Stephen, you believe that Christianity isn't reasonable. My husband believes very uh, passionately that it is reasonable, and he studied this for years. Okay. And so I am looking forward to, we have to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to dive right in. You know, is Christianity anti-science? This is something we hear a lot, and Stephen, I know you've proposed this, and I can't wait to mix it up over that issue. So again, joining me today, Stephen Hicks, a professor of philosophy at Rockford University, and my husband, Neil Roys, a math and worldview instructor. I'm Julie Roys. You're listening to The Roys Report, and we will be right back. We now return to The Roys Report. Here's your host, Julie Roys. Is faith the foundation of reason or the enemy of reason? Welcome back to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're debating this critical question that determines so much of what we believe, how we live, and how we perceive reality. If faith isn't reasonable, then why would anyone believe in God? Religion then becomes, as Karl Marx famously said, merely an opiate of the people, a way to simply feel better about our current circumstances. But... If faith is reasonable, and as some have proposed, is actually the foundation of reason, 
then why would anyone not believe in God? Would love to hear your thoughts. You can join the online conversation about this show uh, just by going to facebook.com slash reach Julie Royce, and Royce is spelled R-O-Y-S. Or you can reach us on Twitter by using our handle at reach Julie Royce. Again, joining me today to debate this issue is Stephen Hicks, a philosophy professor at Rockford University, and my husband, Neil Royce, a teacher of both math and worldview. So let's talk about science and religion and because I think that is really uh, at the crux of whether or not religion or Christianity is reasonable. Stephen, my understanding is that you do not think that Christianity um, and science are compatible, or at least that Christianity is helpful to science. Would you explain that? Mm, ultimately. Well, I think very quickly you have to uh, get nuanced about Christianity, both historically and the, the figures who adopt it. Mm-hmm. If you say, here are the say, top 100 things that Christian, Christians should believe, and you have them in a timeless kind of capsule, and my position is that uh, many or most of those positions are not true, uh, and that, in fact, most of them are antithetical to a, to a scientific or, or rational understanding of the world. And that part of the, or some of those official positions right, of Christianity uh, do seem to state fairly explicitly that one should not be rational about some things, so I'm opposed on that. At the same time, there are many different subspecies of Christianity, and some of the advocates of Christianity historically have tried to argue that Christianity can be made reasonable. So someone like uh, Thomas Aquinas is in that tradition. Galileo, for all of his conflicts with the Catholic Church, uh, in many respects thought he was arguing as a good Christian for reformism, uh, John uh, John Locke, uh, a few generations later, also thought that Christianity could be made reasonable. So the point isn't that if you start from saying, here's someone who thinks of himself or herself as a Christian, uh, th- therefore that person is only believing false things or irrational things, uh, you would then have to judge each person's position on its own merits. Uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, you also then have to say, absent what any given individual is thinking, what are the distinctive core propositions of Christianity, and are those you know, rational, scientific, empirical, and, and so forth. Okay. So let me say, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just a couple of historical points. Right? One mm-hmm. is that in the early days of Christianity, uh, uh, you know, if you go, say, for the first few centuries, uh, Christianity did not see itself as a pro-naturalistic, pro-empirical, pro-scientific worldview. It set itself up as explicitly opposite to that. Uh, uh, that it did say, you know, explicitly that there are uh, revelations that are visited upon a few prophets, that if you are not one of the lucky recipients of those prophecies, you are starting in a position of ignorance, and that the only way to heal your ignorance or get past the ignorance is to accept the authority of the, the prophets, even if it doesn't make sense to you as an individual, and that traditionally is what faith means, accepting the truth of something, even though you yourself don't understand it. So we have the metaphor of the leap of faith. And if that is your core position, then that is necessarily a a non-rational starting point. Okay, let me just stop you there to give Neil a chance to, to chime in, but Absolutely. the leap of faith, I mean, it's interesting, We I referenced that a couple of weeks ago in a show we had answering some of the skeptics' questions of Christianity, 
My grandpa used to say it's not so much a leap of faith, but a small step based on evidence and experience. But that's not a popular view in our society. But Neil, how, how do you respond to what Stephen just said? Well, I think if we take a look at the history of the development of science, it can be very revealing in terms of where Christianity actually stands. Um, the, the early scientists in Western Europe, not referring to the Greeks, but in Western Europe, they, uh, they are popular people because they were so successful in describing reality that the Christians want to have them on their side, the naturalists. It's like, wow, science has connection with reality. So what did those early scientists, like Newton, for example, really believe? Well, Newton, um, according to Morris Klein in his history of mathematics called The Loss of Certainty, said that... So if I could just uh, interject, say yeah. Newton, we're talking 1660s, 1670s... Right, he uh, discovered calculus and... In, in right. 1666, so right. So, so by early, you mean you mean the late 17th century, right? So the the development of science, as we know, in terms of mathematical formulations of reality, did originate in Western Europe while it was under the influence of Christianity. And scientists, like for example Newton, um, did see that. There was order in the universe. He, he believed that there was order in the universe because God put it there. And he believed that scientists were capable of detecting that order because God had given us minds and sense faculties that enabled us to do that. And I think that's one of the main points at which I, I have pushback with your position, Stephen, is that naturalism does not have an understandable and um, sufficient account of why we should trust our sense faculties, our eyes and our ears, when we're doing science. Newton believed that we can trust them because our eyes and ears were created by God. Now, you mentioned early Christianity, the first couple of centuries of Christianity. We do see in the book of Romans that God says that if you study the created order, you will find out truth about God. And mm -hmm. also in Psalm 19, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God, that if you apply your powers of observation using God-designed eyes and ears to the cosmos, you're going to find out reality. That's what Newton did. He said, we've got this mathematics of the terrestrial realm, you know, comes to us from Galileo, mm -hmm. the mathematics from Kepler of the cosmos, and Newton saw they're unified. It's like there must be one person behind all this. Newton thought that his work was going to lead to widespread belief in God. It's like the school I teach at, where every single student is wearing um, clothing that has no holes in it. People are looking at that and say, how can it, there be this whole group of hundreds of teenagers wearing clothes with no holes in them? And there must be some person who authored a dress code. There's no other reasonable explanation. So this is interesting, I, and I would like to get to, I, I'd like to hear your answer to this, Stephen. Why is right. it that the scientific method, if Christianity is so anti-science, why is it that the scientific method and science, as, as Neil outlined, why did it come, you know, I mean, primarily through a Christian era in, you know, Christian Europe, as opposed to why didn't it develop? During the Greek era, when reason was exalted. Right. Okay, so there's a couple of points that are built into Neil's sketch. First, mm -hmm. there is a, 
uh, saying that there is in the world cause and effect, there is a natural order. Uh, and that's your empirical starting point. And then the move is to say, what is the best explanation for why there is order in the universe? There's a natural cause and effect order. And if you make that assumption, then the scientific process gets underway. So the debate on that particular issue, then, is whether we should understand the universe as a self-contained, naturally ordering system, or whether the better explanation is to say that the order in the natural world comes from a higher being, a god who imposed order or created the world with, with, the, with right. the cause and effect built into it. Now, that then is to say you are starting not with religion. You're starting with observations of the natural world and making a claim that the natural world has this cause and effect process in it. And if that is your starting point, if that's your axiom or if that's the basis of your knowledge, then we have no objection. What we're then going to do is have a follow-up debate over what's the best explanation for that natural fact. All right. Well, we, we're going to need okay, to go. We're going to need to go to break. But when we come back, that will be our starting point. What, what were you going to say? There's one other question. Yes. The other point then was uh, Neil is quite rightly saying we also have senses that put us in contact with the natural world, yes, and we have the ability to reason and do math about the natural world. Uh, and if you believe that, then the scientific process can get underway. Then the debate over science and religion is a second order debate. Okay, we're going to need to cut off that right now and go to break. But when we come back, we'll get to those two suppositions and we'll discuss them. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's. The Roy's Report is a listener-supported program, and we're only able to broadcast this program with donations from listeners like you. If you'd like to see this quality program continue, please go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, and click on the Donate button. More of the Roy's Report. Once again, here's Julie Roy's. Welcome back to the Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I am Julie Roy's, and today we're debating whether whether or not Christianity is reasonable. For ages, scholars and intellectuals have debated this issue. The famous physicist Stephen Hawking once said, there's a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority, and science, which is based on observation and reason. Science will win because it works. However, Isaac Newton once astutely said, the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Well, joining me today to help us discern this incredibly important and fundamental issue is Stephen Hicks, a philosophy professor at Rockford University, and my husband, Neil Royce, who's a math and worldview instructor. And by the way, if you're just joining us and you missed the first part of this show, the entire audio will be posted soon after this broadcast to my website, julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. That's julieroys dot com. So there's a lot of things on the table right now um, before the break uh, Stephen, you kind of outlined two issues. One, there's there's a natural world so that has cause and effect in it, and what is the best explanation for that natural world? Two, human beings have reason. Where did that faculty come from, the ability to reason? And three is sort of the historical points, um, the sci- science originating from 
uh, early modern Europe. Where, why did it originate from early modern Europe if it's not reasonable, uh, or if Christianity is not reasonable? I would like to start with that last question, just because I know that's where Neil kind of led off in, in his argument that Christianity mm-hmm. originated. A lot of people think Christianity is against science and is anti-science. I know Neil argues, I think based a lot on reading uh, Nancy Piercy and some of the things she's written, that uh, Christianity is actually a science starter, not a science stopper. But Stephen, how do you respond to that? Right. So if you go to the early modern world here, uh, 1400, 1500, 1600, Isaac Newton is at the tail end of that. Galileo is a little bit earlier. And you do have a religious tradition that is developing in the early modern world that is trying to make a compatibility between science and religion. So you have people who start off saying, I think this uh, religious worldview is essentially correct, but I'm also attracted to this early scientific worldview and I want to make them compatible. And so my disagreement with those people will be much less. Uh, but we also have to remember there's another Christian tradition, uh, uh, a strong one that goes back to Augustine, carries on through Savonarola, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the others, that will say that that attempt to make Christianity and science compatible is a blasphemy, and that original Christianity must necessarily be anti-naturalism, anti-science. And if we start to say that the world is cause and effect in its own right and that human beings should be rational, Christianity is going to lose that debate. And those are the uh, kinds of Christians uh, and other religions that have the same approach that I'm going to have much stronger debates with. But on the historical point, I I, I think uh, it is important to note that Christianity became uh, a, a force in Europe in the 300. Prior to that, it was a grassroots movement, largely an oral tradition. Once uh, Constantine converted, then Christianity also becomes the dominant uh, political uh, religion of, of the times. And the question then is going to be, if Christianity historically is the major philosophical worldview in Europe for a thousand years, why does science not develop in Europe during that unimaginably almost long stretch of time. It is true that history, uh, sorry, science starts to develop in the 1300s, maybe you can see some mm-hmm. rumors of it, more so in the 1400s, 1500s, and so forth. But what's going on at that point is the rediscovery of Greek and Roman texts that have been either lost to Europe for a thousand years or explicitly neglected or destroyed in many cases, by people who consider themselves good Christians. Okay, let me for let me that just amount of time. So the the point there was that all of the truths that we need are in the Bible, and so either we don't even need to pay attention to these other texts, or those other texts, if they, if they contain things that contradict the Bible, they should be destroyed. Okay, let so me throw it to Neil just because we have a short yes, we have a short Fair enough. Let me throw it to Neil. Uh, why don't you respond to that? There, it seems like there's two things there. One. Uh, if Christianity is, is, is a major movement, why does it develop so, the scientific method? Why does it develop so late? Why didn't it develop earlier? Now, I am indebted to an article that Nancy Piercy wrote that addresses the question, is Christianity a science starter or a science stopper? And she, she responds to that question. She says that the Greek influence, the Greek influence was 
a science stopper. And it wasn't until later in the in modern Europe, more 16th, 17th century, that Christianity was finally able to get past it. What was it that the Greeks did to stop science? Their view of reality, their ontology, if you will, was that there's, uh, there's matter which was eternal. It had always been there, and forms had always been there. So the Greek view of reality that stopped science was that reality, the cosmos, was necessary. It could not be any way other than it was. And so for the Greeks, science amounted to like a two-column geometry proof where you take your givens and then you don't go to a laboratory. You go into your mind and perform logical operations on the givens. The Christians finally realized that in, in Europe, they realized, well, wait a second. Reality, matter hasn't always been here. Matter was created by God, a God who makes choices and is contingent. And we don't know what choices God made when he was creating reality. So we should actually go out and investigate, use our powers of observation, form hypotheses, and test them. The Greeks did not do experimental science that was characterized by randomization, replication, and control. It wasn't until the Christian worldview really settled into the minds of the European scientists that they realized, wait, we should do this differently. That's why it's a recent development. We are finally able as Christians to get past the Greek influence and their worldview flaws. Well, and if we're going to look at, and, and you mentioned this, uh, Dr. Hicks, the the progression of Christianity, I mean, and how different eras and different leaders have thought differently about this issue. But I think the question always for Christians, because we have a book that we rely on, what does the Bible actually say? Is, is there anything in the Bible that encourages um, observation? and using our senses, or does the Bible generally discourage it? I mean, clearly, Scripture is full of the supernatural, which would be, and I wouldn't say anti-science, but that's outside of science. It wouldn't be called supernatural if it weren't. But we also, as Christians, realize that supernatural happens rarely. That's why it's supernatural. You know, it, it's, it's something mm. that doesn't normally happen in the natural realm. This is fascinating. I'm loving this discussion. We need to go to a break, but when we come back, um, let's. I want you to address that, Neil, about is there anything in Scripture that either encourages or discourages this? But then I want to move on to the other discussion that we wanted to do about the world, the natural order that has so much order. What's the best explanation for that? Um, we could spend all year on that and probably not exhaust it, but we're going to try to hit that in our uh, last segment. Again, you're listening to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. We'll be right back. This is the Royce Report with Julie Royce. Well, is belief in God reasonable? Welcome back to the Royce Report. I'm Julie Royce, and today we're debating this foundational issue with two men with very different perspectives. Stephen Hicks, a philosophy professor at Rockford University, does not believe belief in God is reasonable. However, challenging his perspective is my husband, Neil Royce, who not only believes that belief in God is reasonable, but that it's actually the foundation of reason. By the way, if you're just want to listen to the entire broadcast or you just want to share it with friends the entire audio will be available shortly after this broadcast just go to julie Roy's, spelled r-o-y-s dot com that's julie Roy's dot com and then you click on the podcast tab so gentlemen uh before the break neil you had addressed this issue about why um the scientific method hadn't developed earlier uh in in europe why did it take so long you're, you're saying well that was because of the greek influence 
uh, that it didn't develop earlier, whereas, Stephen, you were kind of arguing it's, it's because they finally discovered the Greeks and some of that learning during the Renaissance that, that spurred it along. Um, but then, Neil, I wanted you to address sort of Steve's pushback that, you know, Christianity over the ages, uh, you know, there have been some, like uh, Galileo or John Locke, that, that were kind of pro we're Christians and pro-science, but has, has Christianity always been pro-science? Not necessarily. So I, I, my whole argument was, what does the Bible say? Is there anything in Scripture that would move us toward embracing empirical observation or uh, would discourage it? Well, I think the, the core claim that Christianity makes is that the entire Christian um, worldview is based on something that we can look at with our powers of observation, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Scripture that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then there's no point in having any faith whatsoever in Christianity. You may as well just eat, drink, and be merry. So it's amazing how, you know, after the O.J. Simpson trial, you know, we saw that, you know, people who were there, they weren't sure what was going on. But after time had passed, you could find out, okay, here's the evidence, here's what actually happened. In the same way, even though we're 2,000 years later, we can actually go back and look at, um, not the, uh, the eyewitness testimony, eyewitness testimony, but the written testimony and the artifacts to find out whether or not there is a historical basis for faith in Christianity. Yeah, and that's actually, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get into debating the resurrection in our last segment. That might be a little bit much, um, although I, I know that was Lee Strobel, an investigative reporter for Chicago Tribune. That was his journey when he went to investigate Christianity. He said, I'm going to disprove it, and he ended up becoming a Christian. A lot of other people have done that, C.S. Lewis, um, similarly, by looking at the resurrection. But let me throw it to you, Stephen. Um, anything in that you'd like to challenge? Yes, absolutely. So if you want to say that Christianity, for example, is reasonable, mm -hmm. then I would be open to the following. You say, all right, Christianity's core text is uh, Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and so forth. Then the question is going to be, if you can find in Scripture passages that are saying explicitly, you individuals trust your own judgment, use your eyes, use your ears, and look for the evidence, come up with the best rational explanations you can have. If you find things that don't make sense to you in Scripture or from what you're hearing from uh, religious leaders, don't believe them. Trust your own judgment, use your own senses, do your own experiments, and so forth. Then, to that extent, it's fair to say that Christianity is offering a reasonable epistemology. What that would then mean in the case of the resurrection is to say, so... There are claims about resurrection, so here we have a human being who died but came back to life three days later. How am I supposed to process that as an individual, say, 2,000 years later? Well, I can't use my senses, uh, uh, so I don't have any empirical evidence here, and there's no way I can run an experiment right on that. It doesn't seem to make sense given that all of the other billions of human beings I know to have existed have all died, and none of them has come back to life. So what I have here is a story that doesn't make sense to me empirically, logically, rationally, or experimentally. So if the Christian position then is, you should take that as likely just a fanciful story that got written down, perhaps by some people who wanted to elevate 
they're a religious leader to the status of a prophet. If Christian position is to say that's what you should do with respect to this, uh, the resurrection story, then it's a reasonable position. But if the Christian position is, no, 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 you should believe the resurrection story, even if it doesn't make sense to you, that is a faith position that is non-rational. And my understanding is Christianity, in all of its various forms, without exception, says, no, you have to take that as a bedrock faith commitment, otherwise you can't be a Christian. And that's not rational. I love that you brought that up, because I think that's not how I understand Christianity, or you, Neil. Um, Yeah? Well... If you take a look at, uh, say, Romans 1 in verse 19, it says, what may be known about God, so this is a statement about how we acquire knowledge, what may be known about God is plain to them, he's referring to people who are have not made the commitment to be Christians, or to be, it's, it's plain to them, because, how, how is it? It's because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now we're switching away from resurrection. Make the resurrection plain. Uh, that's the issue here. Can you okay. Okay. okay, so so let's take a look at the resurrection. We uh, we can't run an experiment on it, but that's uh, in the but historical sciences. You have said is part of being reasonable. Well, I mean, experimentalism. That's part of... So now you're saying, though, that you're not... Basing your belief on experimental in this case, is it based on well the, the use of the senses? You if, said if, being reasonable is part of uh, going on the basis of sensory evidence, but in this case, you're saying no, no, no. There is no sensory evidence. Well, we do. We do have um, in in history the inputs for a historical investigation are a little bit different. A reasonable historian is going to take a look at eyewitness evidence written testimony and artifacts. We do have written testimony and artifacts about, for example, um, we have uh, Josephus, for example, who writes about how Jesus' disciples died. Of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 of the 11... What are Josephus's dates? Um, yeah, Josephus was, he, he was writing about the fall of Jerusalem, so he's there, you know, um, a witness in 70 A.D., so he's he's. So this is thirty something years after Jesus's death. So he's not an eyewitness. He's reporting on other people who claim to have been eyewitnesses. Well, he he so he did the, write the status of his. Yes, yeah. fair enough. Go ahead. So he he did write about how. So this is basically an extra biblical source. So you don't have to you know believe the Bible on this, but it's an extra biblical source about how but Jesus. That our, the framing of our discussion here is that we're appealing to Scripture not what commentators who weren't there wrote about other people. Well, what we're doing, I, I think, let's, let's give Neil a chance to talk, because what yeah. we're doing is, is he's appealing to Josephus, who is a, a historian that I don't believe was even a believer, um, writing at 70 AD. So although he wasn't an eyewitness, he interviewed eyewitnesses. And I'm a reporter, so, um, I mean, to me, that's how you determine truth if you weren't there, is you go and you, you interview eyewitnesses. Right. Sure. And if sure. you publish something... And the people, like, for example, I was never there when JFK was shot, but if I published something yep. that was contrary to what people who are alive who were here, you know, when right. that happened, sure. they're going to push back on that. So, go so ahead. One, one thing that we see that's been documented is that the people who followed Jesus, they, um, 
they were willing to die for their faith. Now, we can take a look at, you know, a couple ways of understanding this. If they were just making up this story that Jesus rose from the dead, if they were lying about it, then we now know that it's a psychological law that people do not die for things that they know to be false. Now, there are people like, for example, in Islam, sometimes you'll see people saying, I'm going to die for something, you know, in a jihad because I know I'm going to go to paradise. I'm going to die for something I believe is true. People do that. But no one has ever died for something that they knew was false. So when the disciples of Jesus were told, look, stop saying that Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, you know, we're going to kill you. At this, at that point, a reasonable person would say, well, okay, you know, we're just trying to make up a world religion. But the fact that they were willing to die for something that, you know, it, it's just, it, that's not reasonable to believe that they were willing to give their lives for something that they knew was false. Because they or were right. Believe. Well, they, 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 they were in a position to observe. They, they, well, the, they the knew whether is, they were lying or not. The, the point is that they claim to have seen Jesus after he raised from the dead. So if they were lying right, exactly. about seeing him, I mean, they would know whether or not they're telling the truth about that. So yeah, The only options aren't lying or not, but just, you know, people can believe sincerely all sorts of things that are not true. Right, but it we would be... Lots of people are willing to die for their beliefs, so... Marxists and uh, French revolutionaries and American revolutionaries and members of Islam and Christians. Right, but the point Jews here. And, and so yeah. the, point the point here is. Go ahead, Neil. What you're saying is there are some people who made claims to have seen Jesus, right? and then the question is what's the status of their eyewitness testimony? Well, I think the point is that they were in a position to know if whether they what they were saying was true or false. So if. And it does. Yeah. Is it reasonable to presume that twelve men who are saying something that they know is false would have given their lives for it? I think that's the question. No, that's not the question. It's not that they know that it's false. Because mm-hmm. We know people can know things, but they can also believe things, and belief and knowledge are not the same thing. Okay, so they people could have. Can have you know, it can be wishful thinking or. Uh, you know, the difference between belief and knowledge comes in, comes in degree. Okay. The question is, how are we, 2,000 years later, to assess the eyewitness claims of the people of the time? And your position is to say, well, they were willing to die for their belief. And I, I'm not contesting that. Sure. But then the question is, does the fact that someone is willing to die for their belief prove that their belief is true? And I think obviously not. So uh, why would you say obviously that does show that? Okay, we have about because they were willing to belie <laughs> We have about so a minute my, left. My, my response to that is yeah. that there is an important distinction. There's an important distinction between an individual who says, "I'm going to die for something that I believe is true," and another individual yeah. who says, "I'm going to die for something that I know is false." And so my contention is that if the disciples were just making up this claim about what they observed, namely Jesus rising from the dead, if they, they, they were in a position to know. It wasn't a belief issue. They knew whether that was true or false. And people do and how not, did they know? And be, how do we know that they knew? 
Well, what we know is that they claim to have seen him. So it's so and this is the question. Did did all 12 of them have a hallucination that they saw Jesus raised from the dead and they were all just deceived? Did they want to believe it so badly that I mean, it's these are the questions, you know, that then you have to come up with a reasonable explanation for why these 12 men believed or died for something that that they knew or at least believed was false. Why did they believe it was false or why did they believe it was true? Difficult, difficult issues. And again, I, this is the case always when we have a debate show that we scratch the surface and we just don't have time to go uh, into all the realms we'd like to. But I would love to continue this discussion. Stephen, would you be up for that? Sure, let's plan on it. Uh, if we could do it possibly in January. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll see when we can get these two men back together. But again, thanks so much to Stephen Hicks, uh, a philosophy professor at Rockford University, my husband, Neil Royce. Thanks for joining me today. Again, if you missed any part of the show, just go to Julie Royce, spelled R O Y S dot com. We'll have the podcast posted within the hour. Hope you have a great weekend and God bless. <laughs> 